It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And today, once again, we have to save the presidency. And there's only one woman who can do it. And she's the only woman in the history of the planet who has run a successful presidential campaign. It's been all dudes. It's been a sausage fest. But somehow uh, she was able to navigate the Clinton machine and prevail. Uh, She is almost single-handedly responsible for giving us the delightful videos of crying Hillary supporters at the Javits Center. If you're ever in in a bad mood, trust me, those will lift your spirits immediately. Uh, She has a brand new book out called... Here's the Deal. Here's the Deal. Kellyanne Conway. Welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Well, Kennedy, I'd like to be one small molecule helping you achieve exactly that. How do we do it? We have no choice. <laughs> we uh, don't. We have a voice. Your no book is great. Well written. Didn't Thank want you. to put it down. Uh, I was at the dermatologist and they kept interrupting me. Uh, and I was like, please just stop. <laughs> okay. I want chapter 18. My skin's 18, not stop. going anywhere. I have to know what happens here. Um, but, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by your rise, because when I knew you at Fox before you joined Trump World, um, you were an analyst. You were someone who consumed data and talked about uh, the political landscape from a Republican point of view. And, you know, to me, you were a famous person and a brand in your own right. And then when you entered, um, you know, sort of the the dirty push up your sleeves world of presidential politics, uh, I was very impressed and alarmed because I, I know it's a weird and cutthroat world. But from what you knew about politics, from what you knew about campaigns, the stories that you heard, things that you had seen firsthand, how different was it navigating the whole thing, the whole enchilada with someone as unconventional as Donald Trump? All wonderful, great questions. Thanks for reading the book, Kennedy. Not just covering the book, but reading the book. It really is a book for everyone. It's my circuitous, unlikely journey, but in many ways, it's any woman's story because this is the greatest country ever and we all work hard and once in a while get a lucky break. I was an unconventional pollster in the Republican Party and Republican polling can be a very male-dominated industry. That's okay until it's not. And what made it not okay were the many times that the seat at the big boys table was neither freely given to me nor sometimes um, there. You know, I would go to sit down and be pulled out from under me. So I have to thank a lot of those male consultants because in sort of pushing me to the side and trying to sideline me from Republican polling, it forced me to go out and do a lot of work for corporate America, consumer America, nonprofit America. And what I learned, Kennedy in doing projects in all 50 states in this country and the territories is the essential wisdom of people matters and folks have great ideas and impressions. And if you listen to them carefully and consistently, you can learn a great deal. Contrast that with Hillary Clinton, who literally called so many millions of Americans deplorable and worse, irredeemable. I learned to respect the essential wisdom of people. They were looking for years 
for somebody who, quote, has a ton of experience, but not in Washington, not in politics. You're thinking, well, who can that be? And it turned out Donald Trump at the right time was the wish fulfillment of what people have been telling pollsters for decades, that I want somebody who comes pre-verified, who's successful, who I can relate to and can relate to me, but is not one of these people who has spent 20 years in Washington or even 10 years in a governor's mansion and then Washington. Hillary ran on her experience in 2008 against Senator Obama, lost in the primary. She ran again with even more experience, including Secretary of State by then, eight years later against Mr. Donald Trump, the businessman. People rejected her both times for a number of reasons, but in part because they looked at her experience as too swampy, as too of Washington, as to fill up my bio so one day I could become president. But Donald Trump is an unconventional candidate, put an unconventional team around him also. He did not go for the same pollster that worked for Bob Dole and John McCain and Mitt Romney. Do you see a pattern here? They yeah, lost. but I, I want to I ask you about that because that's something that's always been fascinating to me because the former president uh, operates by intuition and feel. You know, when he gets a feel for someone and he feels that he can trust someone, then he invests himself in that person. But unfortunately, there are charlatans like Paul Manafort who are essentially sociopaths who are able to chameleon their way into someone's good graces by becoming what seems like a trustworthy person when really they're not. So, you know, you're having to deal with people like Brad Parscale and mm. and Paul Manafort and these blowhards who really aren't working very hard. And, you know, a, a friend of mine who is a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, she happens to be a woman. And she said, when you have the choice for a doctor, always choose a woman <laughs> because they have to work twice as hard for half the credit. Um, <laughs> and it, it seems to be the way in presidential politics. Is there, are, are women at a disadvantage and can you relate to Hillary Clinton when she says that being a woman put her at a disadvantage and people automatically uh, use that against her and that's why she didn't win? For all the benefits that women have living in the 21st century for you know, how the great strides you made in education levels and economically and obviously professionally, professionally and we, we own land now and we own homes and we do all these great things. We're part of the investor class. We're in, in charge of our retirement securities. We're in charge of our bodies. All these great things that have happened. Uh, women in politics still make for strange bedfellows. It is, it is not a place where women see themselves easily because it's a system that they can't necessarily relate to or access or would want to. They'll say, well, I don't know, politics, all that partisanship, where's the place for me? I'm a good negotiator. I'm a consensus builder or I'm ethical or why would I move my, why would I work half time in Washington and half time back at home, wherever mm -hmm. that is? So it's difficult for many women to picture themselves in the game. That's changed, of course, but it, it's changed more rapidly on the Democrat side. And on the Republican side, you do see more and more women running as Republicans. Maya Flores just winning in the Rio Grande Valley, Mexican-born congresswoman who ran on legal immigration and is married to a Border Patrol agent. She's a great messenger, I think, for women and minority women who want to be Republicans at any level. You see again and again women in, in 2020, Kennedy, when no single Republican incumbent lost for Congress. Pretty remarkable if you lose the presidency and you, you lose nobody in Congress. Of the 15 congressional seats that went from blue Democrat to red Republican, they were won by a woman, a minority, 
a veteran or a combination thereof. So you do see people, but I write in my book, Here's the Deal, that I had hit my head against the plexiglass ceiling many times. Mm -hmm. And that is true. And look, with Hillary Clinton, after 2008, I feel like I needed a shower. I watched the way Hillary Clinton was treated and I watched the way Sarah Palin was treated. And it's just, it was just terrible. And it was very gendered. There's no question. At the time I had two daughters and, and now I have three. And I always said, I wouldn't tell my daughters to run for either president or a vice president after that experience. Caribou Barbie, um, Hillary crying. They talked about Hillary's cleavage in a Washington Post article that was supposed to be about fashion. So sure, but I don't feel too sorry for Hillary Clinton because I think her path is the path of many Democratic women. She got there through her husband. And she doesn't like to be reminded of that, but that's true. That's how we know her. We hear about Kellyanne Conway's husband. So he got to be known through his conservative wife. Uh, but Hillary Clinton, in the end, she was too much Hillary, not enough Clinton. She didn't have the charm and the people skills and the connective tissue with America that Bill Clinton had. But yes, I think one of the one of the worst moments for Barack Obama when he was running for president in 2008 was when Hillary said, well, said to the moderator in the presidential debate, well, it hurts my feelings when you ask if I'm likable. And he literally said, you're likable enough, Hillary. It was such an insult. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, we'll, we'll talk about your husband, George, in just a little bit, because I had a personal reaction to seeing him. And I want your opinion on that, because it was very similar to the reaction that I had to another person who has been in the news. And and we'll we'll discuss that in just a moment. But you wrote something in your book that I thought was very interesting. And I don't know if it was a throwaway description, but I thought there might be more to it in terms of how you work and your story. And I also thought about it in terms of uh, other successful women in politics. I don't consider Hillary Clinton to be successful, having lost the presidency twice. Um, but you, you, you talk about being raised in a family of uh, self-denying Italian Catholic women. Yes. And that, that phrase self-denying, I thought was really interesting to me because I think, you know, if you're honest with yourself and you are in a profession that's dominated by men, there's a part of you that is naturally self-denying yes. and that you are able to handle a bunch of things at once. That is, you know, there is a difference in men's brains versus women's brains and women's brains actually grow and have a capacity to multitask in a way that men just don't. It's not their fault. They just, they don't have that. I feel like Hillary Clinton was a very selfish person. She was a selfish candidate. You know, it's like, I'm with her. It was all about, you know, this is my time. This is all about me. It's an issue that I have with baby boomers in general. But is your ability to be a self-denying person, is that what makes you successful? And is, is it also a weakness? It was a huge weakness for many years. Remember, Donald Trump plucked me from, I was hiding in plain sight, had been working hard for decades. He plucked me not at 29 or even 39, at 49 years old. And there were so many years, if not decades, where that self-denial helped, it caused me to undercut the value of my services. I couldn't believe that some of the men were making it Kennedy, but they were, maybe because they asked for it. And I do tell the story in the book where I had a breakthrough moment in 1996, my company was a year old. CNN had me on contract, very rare back in the day. And I got invited to give a speech. And the guy said, well, we invited Mark Melman, Democratic pollster, obviously a man. And he's already committed. And the group wants you. And it's at the Mayflower Hotel, which I can see outside the window of my office as he's telling, as he's asking me. And this, the person from the speaking bureau says, what is your speaking fee? And I thought, oh, I froze because I didn't have such a thing. Nobody had ever paid me to give a speech. 
um, free speech wasn't just what I learned in constitutional law in law school. It was, let's call Kellyanne. She'll give a free speech. Uh, she'll give a speech for free. And I froze. And if I had under, I knew I would undercut my value because I knew the person, me, that was being asked, what is your value? What do you charge for us to have an hour of your time? With Mark Melman, I was going to be that self-denying girl living in that house of women who are always like, no, it's your turn. No, I'll wait for you to eat. No, it's okay. What do you want to do? And and my mom could never even pick out her own popsicle. You pick it for me. It doesn't matter. And I turned one day. I said, mom, it does matter. Pick out your own damn popsicle flavor. Stand up for yourself. So I took a line out of when Harry met Sally and I said to the speaker bureau guy, I'll have what he's having. He said, what? And I said, well, whatever Mark asked for, I'll have the same thing. And it was $3,500 in 1996. It was an enormous amount of money. I almost fell to the floor uh, when the man told me. But I would have probably said, you know, it's just going to be fun to be with you. I'll have some lunch. It'll be good. Why don't you give Mark my speaking fee? So I was self-denying for years. And over time, you know, when you get kicked around enough and someone like Donald Trump sees something in you that maybe you saw and a few others saw, but Mitt Romney hadn't seen it. Nobody named Bush had ever seen it. The McCain people never saw it. He saw it. And he wanted somebody different. And I have to give Donald Trump enormous credit. Not only did he do, not only did he go, Kennedy, where no Republican candidate for president had ever gone before, which is hire a woman to run the campaign. But he never once said to me in the conversation when he hired me, I'm hiring you because you're a woman or I'm hiring you because I'm running against a woman, Hillary Clinton. It just was implicit. And he just, he felt that, he felt that my skills that he had seen honed over time, my knowledge of polling, my gift of being on TV here and there, he just felt that that was consonant with the kind of campaign he wanted to run. I had another connection, though. My connection was to the people because I relate to the forgotten man, forgotten woman, forgotten child. I'm a blessed person now, um, and I, I've always been blessed but I grew up very modestly, and I grew up with the original forgotten woman, my mother, forgotten by her husband, forgotten by feminism, forgotten by economic upward mobility, forgotten by – she felt forgotten a little bit by the Catholic Church. She worried that they – you know, I would be seen as a bastard because my father left when I was young. But you know what? She's amazing, and she is much like millions and millions of American women who make the tough choice of leaving – and, and just figuring it out. And I think that's a very common story. But when Donald Trump said, when I saw all these people, the rallies, I figuratively saw in them people I already knew and loved so dearly. But I literally saw people I'd grown up with show up at these rallies. We'd be in Pennsylvania. And I said, oh, my goodness. So there was that connective tissue as well. But my message to women is your time will come. You work hard in some days, some weeks, some years, Kennedy, it doesn't even seem worth it. Who's going to notice? And then you get a little bit lucky too. But, you know, we women have to learn to say, to accept the word no. You will be rejected. You will be passed over for that job, for that position in school or that relationship. But we also have to learn how to say no. We women don't know how to say no to anything and anyone. It's a gift you give yourself to really focus on your own health, your own family, your own business, your own goals, and not let other people throw logs in your way. Look, the Republican consultancy to this moment is male-dominated, but it's also a walking RICO violation. It's also a gravy train where they all make sure each other has a comfy seat. And I think that's what needs to change. I have told the powers that be at the Republican Party, have everybody sign a no kickbacks clause. Have everybody give of their time to young candidates, to young practitioners in the business who want to learn for free. You benefit mightily, as we all have, from being a Republican consultant and conservative activist. Go give of your time on the weekends. We should be, if you don't do it on your own, as I do, be forced to do that. 
two, three hours a month for the whole year. That's how you build a bench of great practitioners and honest practitioners for the next generation. Yes, and and Democrats do have they a do very it. shallow bench in terms of presidential candidates. For sure. Um, but I'm I'm a huge believer in mentorship. Yes. And you know, recognizing yourself in people who are just starting out, and also recognizing who helped you, who said yes, and be that person to someone. I, I think that's very important. All right, we got more of this interview after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Now, I want to talk about George because um, during the Johnny Depp trial, I had such a strong reaction to Amber Heard. And I found myself, uh, you know, watching her testify and watching her on cross-examination, getting more and more upset at her. And I, I felt like uh, she was lying. She was very inauthentic. She had capitalized on this moment. And, you know, and I was I was watching my own reaction, wondering, like, why am I so mad at her? This is really interesting. Like, I wonder if other people are kind of feeling the same way. And lo and behold, they were. I saw George at a party uh, the night before the correspondence dinner, and I wanted to go up and get in his grill and yell at him because of, of what he had done. And you write about this in your book, like you had a pact, you have kids, you're part of a tribe. And, you know, even if you diverge, they're the most important thing. But when you are embarrassing the mother of your children in a very public setting, when she is in the middle of a senior advisory role in a very controversial White House, and you are undermining her. I, I felt like, as a partner, I don't know him. I don't know you very well. I felt like it was so passive-aggressive. And you write about this like you have a sacred obligation to your children. And, and you wrote something that really struck me. It's not what your children think of you when they're 15. It's what they think of you when you're 30. And that comportment, what he did, you know, I could see a 30-year-old looking at that and going, that's my mom. That was super lame. Well, by then they'll be parents of their own, maybe, or decide not to be parents, but they will be mature enough. Well, I appreciate, you know, I just think your listeners who I'm sure love you and are loyalty and learn so much to you should know that you're sitting here with no notes and no net. You read the book, you took out from it what you want, and you're asking me questions about it. I think it's incredibly valuable because you are obviously, I mean, you're a wildly successful person, a mom yourself. And I, I appreciate what you said because it all came as a shock. People have to understand that as I write in the book, Kennedy, I don't pretend that George's vows are to Donald Trump or Joe Biden or the Republican Party. Nonsense. His vows were to me. And yes, we have a sacred pact. There are four children, all school age now, but particularly then, very young and impressionable then, and reading about their parents. And I didn't respond in kind. I didn't respond to the tweeting men in my life, Donald Trump and George Conway. But speaking of Donald Trump, he was very good to me. He was very protective of me through all of that, always asking how the kids were by name, worried that maybe the George Conway tweeting thing was a hill that was even too much for me to climb and scale. And I felt very protected in the White House. Um, among my colleagues, I think some of whom just felt very badly for me, some of whom use it as an opportunity to get in President Trump's ear. You got to get rid of her. What if she tells George this or what if she tells she's got a top secret security clearance disgusting. and she knows our strategy and all. Absolutely disgusting, especially because some of the people I worked with, Kennedy, and some on the campaign where I did not work in 2020, like some people in the media who just could not get enough of the the Kellyanne George drama. 
these are some of the thinnest skinned people living in the sheerest glass houses you'll ever see. So I don't know what they thought they were doing, but look, George can change his mind about Donald Trump. And in fact, he did. How do we know that? Because in my book, I have pictures of George on election night crying in his MAGA hat, proud that Donald Trump, his candidate that he supported and helped and funded, um, and especially his wife as a campaign manager who had succeeded, he was overcome with emotion in a way I I wasn't, um, that Donald Trump had won. She did it. She did it. And he, like me, George Conway, accepted a big job in Donald Trump's administration. So people need to know that we were all in as a couple, as a family moving to Washington. And then almost instantly changed his mind about what, Donald Trump. What changed, though? Have you, I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's like you, you lay a lot of this bare because you have to. If you're going to write a book about yourself, you have to put in the parts that are uncomfortable as well. You know, when you asked him, what changed? It's all Trump, Trump, Trump. That's a valid question. So how can you go from supporting and, you know, if Donald Trump tried to make out with you at a state dinner or or something and, you know, was very personal with him, that's understandable. Nothing of the sort. A lot of people would understand that, but him just throwing a tantrum like that, uh, I thought was so classless and well, the I, tantrum I, continues yeah you know, and he's I, on tv about january 6th and he's and he, we're going to impeach the president and the sdny has got a lot they shut down the whole investigation and wait till tish james does this what and wait till robert Mueller's report we all read it he's and we all fell asleep tell him to get a tattoo well and take a nap we used to be obsessed with me like that but anyway he but it's all been very corrosive to our family and look trump derangement syndrome is real i've seen it up front i had secret service because of it for a while i'm just a staffer and um look it's again george can change his mind but i feel like he changed his mind about me and i write in the book kennedy if you're listening out there if you're a kennedy saves the world podcast fan, and I know there are many of you, and you have broken with somebody because of politics, because of Donald Trump or Joe Biden, or uh, call them today. It's honestly not worth it. You have to ask yourself, do you want to be loved or do you want to be right? And we as a nation, we as families, we as friends, we need to sort of find a way to coexist peacefully, even where we disagree. And I, I, that just, that isn't there. And the people who feasted on it are shameful. And it's so interesting, isn't it so funny and ironic, Kennedy, that the media have not commented much at all on, on this, um, on what they did to my family. And frankly, they're not commenting at all. And people like Steve Bannon, who I wrote very plainly, uh, would run around all day in the White House for the six months he was there before he was fired. He'd, he'd, he'd run around saying, F the media, enemy the people, fake news, you're a disgrace, we're going to destroy you. And at night, he would be treating them to Chinese food dinners in his secret apartment in Roslyn, Virginia. Um, and so, you know, I write about it. I'm like, well, and they, they don't, they're not covering that at all because they're all very sheepish that indeed they were being fed leaks and leaks and leaks. But on the personal stuff, um, this is not, you know, people would say, I write in my book, they'd say, oh, you're just James Carville and Mary Madeline. You're trying to make money off of this. Let me tell you something that I did not put in my book. As soon as I left the White House, less drama, more mama for my kids, for my family, I was, we were offered immediately six figures worth of speaking fees. If we can just get George and Kellyanne to appear together, this would be great. We don't have to have Donna Brazil and Kellyanne. We can have George and Kellyanne. How fun. And I said no to all of it. It would easily be seven figures in our pockets by now with a couple speeches here and there. I said, no, this is not a show. This is my life. This is my family. This was my job. These are my children. This is real life. This is not fiction. And I could not, I I would not have done that at that stage. Uh, It just felt wrong, didn't do it. And I say that also because I write in the book, Kennedy, that I would ask George what you just asked me. 
Why? And I would just get Trump, Trump, Trump. And I said, I don't want to be stuck in a cable news segment in the master bedroom. Like, I've already heard all this on TV all day from people. And I never really got a full answer, except you work for a madman. You're embarrassing your family. You're disgracing yourself. You ruined your life. On and on and on. I was really trying to understand, still trying to understand how in the world it was worth it. But last point on this. Everybody said, oh, it's just the Conway show. It's just for show. It's just for profit. What profit? I was on a government salary. We had to pay all, you know, whatever I got from that government salary, we had to pay lawyers and financial people to comply with all the silly rules in the federal government. Look, this, if I said in the book, if this was a show, nobody told me, please cancel the rest of the season and take me out of the starring role. I don't want any part but of also, it. But also your reaction to the pointed and personal questions you got in the middle of all of that, if this were a show, if you were trying to capitalize on it, you would have thrown people red meat. You would have been teasing the next chapter. Uh, You would have been throwing grenades right back if this were all manufactured. And your comportment versus George's vastly different and shame on him. Good for you. Your kids will see that. That's the most important thing. Um, And I have two last questions. One, what is it about Donald Trump that makes people absolutely like love him like a cult figure or hate him like he is the devil incarnate. It is remarkable. And it really is a dichotomy. Um, I've never seen anything like that. It is a dichotomy. No, never. First of all, people follow him because he be- the, the people who follow him believe that he was there for them. He was not there for himself. He was there for them. That he is a pl- he was a political outsider, first president in U.S. history who had never held elective office or military office. And Dwight D. Eisenhower being the only other one with no elective experience previously. So because Donald Trump can legitimately say he's a political outsider, Kennedy, they're political outsiders. They look at themselves as political outsiders. And they thought when he elevated issues like trade and immigration to the top of the heap, where he made it about bringing back manufacturing, recalibrate these trade deals. Why is China eating our lunch? Why are we shipping our jobs and our wealth to Mexico, to China, to Japan? Why are we doing this? And he would just say it's unfair. Look what's happening at the border. He would say, let's build a wall, cut your taxes, repeal and replace Obamacare. He had these very quick, crisp ways of encapsulating problem and solution together. Repeal Common Core at the time was a big one. And so people felt he was there for them. He didn't erect this conventional political campaign. He had built a movement. They felt like they were shareholders in the movement. They would show up at the shareholders meeting, the rally, and feel like they were part of something big. Um, and so, and then he delivered on a lot of those policies. They will tell you they want two dollar gasoline. They want the store shelves brimming with infant formula. They want low mortgage they rates. Want they want a stock market that's growing. Yeah, they they want jobs. They want to feel like they can start a manufacturing business in America and be supported and not undermined. I get a lot, and and I hear that from that's right. Democrats and let's talk as about well. the other side. Why do people hate him so much? So they hate him for a few reasons. First of all, it's elitism. There's a class issue here. Even though he's a billionaire, he's not a billionaire like them. I sat on the board of the Trump World uh, Trump World Tower condo where George and I lived. And I met Donald. I, I knew Donald Trump a little, but I really got to know him there. And I was impressed. He, They say famously, and I witnessed it firsthand, he would rather be downstairs with the hard hats talking about the construction of the building and what they're up to. He'd rather talk to the plumbers and the welders than he would the financiers up on the 26th floor conference room because that's just who he's always been. It's like, why does he eat his meat well done? Why does he only eat his... You know, it's always, look, listen to the way he talks. Listen, there's a certain elitism there. But the real reason they hate him is because they never saw him coming. 
Now, it's one thing if you're in the mainstream media and your crappy polls are mispredicting the election race. And I'm telling you that day by day, don't even do national polls. They're meaningless. We don't do any of the Trump campaign. Look at the statewide polls. Look at the states that Obama and Biden. As you point out, you're going to win with the electoral college. With the electoral college, not this fiction of electability. But it's one thing that they did not want Donald Trump to win, that the media did not vote for him to win. It's quite another that he shocked and embarrassed them with his win. I don't think they ever got back, got got over the shock and awe of his victory because they never saw it coming. And they're supposed to be telling us what's happening. They're supposed to be saying, and here's who the next president will be, and here's who. So it was a shock and awe, and it was that they they can caricature him and mass however they wanted to. But, you know, a funny thing happened. He presided over what I call, Kennedy, the democratization of information, whether you liked his tweets or not, and not, not all of them were my favorites, as he knows, whether you liked his tweets or not, him providing presidential communications routinely meant that we all received them instantly and free of charge. That is the democratization of information. He cut out the middleman. You no longer had to wait for the six o'clock news to tell you what had happened that day. By then it was stale. It wasn't even news anymore. He had already told you, you had already accessed that information again, free of charge and instantly, whether you're the CEO on the job, the stay-at-home mom, the welder looking at his phone on a break. And that is something that I think the middleman could never get past. Do you hope he runs again in 2024? Well, I think he will. And what I hope happens is that we, whoever is running, whether it's President Trump or someone else, makes the clear, concise case for the contrast with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Because, Kennedy, let's face it, it's in less time it takes to have a baby, they ruin the country. I mean, the, these, the, the left-wing policies he was following at the beginning and then the inflection point for many Americans where he lost their confidence in his competence, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Almost, a year, yes. almost a year ago. But everything since then, all the, 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 the price of everyday consumables of our necessities, Putin in Ukraine, 2 million people over the southern border, fentanyl, the number one killer of 18 to 44-year-olds in our country. He just ignores all of this. And if you think he's bad, look at his vice president. We have two people at the top of the heap in American leadership who embarrass us every single day, go abroad and insult us. You don't need to go to Germany or to Poland to insult us. You can stay right here and do that, folks. But So I have a vested interest, and I will be there to try to retire these two very quickly. So I believe President Trump wants to win. He wants to run. I think he'll run, if he runs as vintage Trump circa 2015, 2016, he's got a much, much better shot than talking about the election in 2020. Why? Because the clearest, cleanest path to be president again is just to say, I'm going to do the cage match rematch against Joe Biden. But he should do that the last possible second, not this summer when he wants to, but maybe closer to the midterms. Would you work on the campaign and in the White House again? I would love to work in the White House again. I loved my job in public service. You know, Kennedy, I took that job on my 50th birthday. I was a late bloomer when it came to public service. I understand why people spend a lifetime doing it, giving up all that money because you feel like you're one small molecule to help affect positive change. And people didn't want to believe how hard these jobs were when we were there. And they were harder when we were there because we were always, you know, we had a mountain, a a cavalcade and an avalanche coming to us every day of resistance. But look how hard these jobs are. Look at the presidency, the the vice presidency. Look at these secretaries who lie for a living, the cabinet members. Look at the people at the podium telling you the economy is going great. They they rebuilt it. It's wonderful. Why 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 is everyone worried? Why, you know why these poll numbers are low? Because the press is mean to Joe Biden. If the press were honest about Joe 
Joe Biden, he'd be polling in the teens. Nobody really believes it. I think that they made, that sounded blaming. filthy. I did not mean he would be polling teens into the White House. <laughs> I'm sure he would like polling to sniff. <laughs> Some people, his poll numbers would be in the teens. They would. Um, it's almost as if he's blaming those babies for being so hungry. I mean, they blame us for wanting everyday consumables to not be so out of reach economically, for us to want energy independence, for us to want Ukraine to not be so violated by Putin. And the list goes on and on. If I were Joe Biden, I would just try to course correct, just to try to say to people, I see that you're in pain. I see that we're suffering, but we have, I'm a man with a plan. It will get better. They haven't even admitted that there's a problem. So I have a vested interest, as many people do. Look at the realignment of many African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and now particularly Hispanic-Americans moving towards the America First agenda, thirsting for conservative solutions. It's happening now. And so, I, yes, I plan to be a part of that. My kids will always come first, so it really depends on their ages and stages and what works best for us. But in terms of public service, I see myself serving again in someone's administration, yes. All right, here's the deal. It is Kellyanne Conway's book, uh, go read it. It's it's fascinating. It's great. It's honest. There are some wonderful asides uh, that seem like throwaway lines that put people in their place who uh, absolutely should not have been anywhere near the Oval Office. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Kennedy, for having me. Absolutely. Keep this, saving the world. We have to. This has been Kennedy Saves the World, and I am Kennedy. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.